the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This morning, we find ourselves in a two-part series, the second of the series, that helps us understand not only the importance of dealing with sin in the church, but also how we should deal with sin in the church. A couple weeks ago, I illustrated confronting sin or the lack thereof to the common solutions that people find when they suffer with plantar fasciitis. Most solutions, such as special socks or sleeves or insoles in their shoes, may temporarily relieve the pain, but in the long run, they cause more damage because they're keeping the muscle that's causing the pain from developing and fixing itself, much like we do when we coddle the sinner rather than confront. This will actually make the fasciitis worse despite relieving the pain. In the same way, when we encounter a brother or sister in Christ or professing brother or sister in Christ who is in sin, when we focus only on the feelings of that person and don't address the sin biblically the way God wants, which will almost always involve some measure of pain, then you will make the sin and the sinner worse. And last week, We saw how the incredible sin in the midst of the Corinthian church, a man sleeping with his stepmother, and how Paul commands the Corinthian believers to deal with this man and his sin, as well as how he himself has already dealt with this man in his heart and in his mind. With that backdrop of this particular sin going on in this particular church, We continue in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians and look at how the way we deal or don't deal with sin or such a situation will affect the entire church, every individual in it. Because, after all, if you let plantar fasciitis fester, it is not just your foot that will be affected. Your whole body will be affected. You cannot walk properly. You cannot get places on time. You cannot sit through a meeting without being distracted by the pain. And so your whole body, your whole schedule, your whole family, and your work, and many other things will be handicapped as well. Just as one member of the body's sin will handicap the whole church. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Our passage for the morning is verses 6 through 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. We've been studying verse by verse through 1 Corinthians, and we find ourselves in this passage. Let me read for you verses 6 through 8 of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 as we continue Paul's flow of thought in confronting this sin. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? 
clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover also has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. This morning, I want to offer to you our outline, which is five universal benefits of church discipline. Five universal benefits of church discipline, and it's not even the process per se of church discipline, but dealing with sin. Five universal benefits, in other words, five benefits that the whole church will receive in dealing with the sin of another person. And you've got to understand that. It is not just that his sin affects the whole, but bringing him or pushing him to the point of repentance, if not removing him, if there is no repentance, will also benefit the whole. And understand that as we go through these five points, I'm talking about the whole process of church discipline. In this context, it would be what we call step four, putting the man out of church because there has been no repentance and the sin is just so wicked and he's not doing anything about it. The church is not doing anything about it. And so in that context, we're talking about putting the man out of the church. But you have to understand that these five benefits that we're going to look at this morning, we will have, we will benefit from at any point in addressing sin should there be repentance. Well, without further ado, let me give you the first universal benefit of church discipline, and that is it keeps us humbly focused on God's will. It keeps us humbly focused on God's will. Look at the first part of verse 6 again, the first sentence. He simply says, your boasting is not good. This comes on the heels of Paul pointing out and rebuking the Corinthian sin of pride and arrogance having already seen this manifested in a multitude of ways throughout the epistle in the church as a whole, the Corinthian church. Last week, we talked about how this pertains to their response to this man's sin of incest. By way of review, there was an arrogance in their spirituality. And we don't know exactly how that is playing out. But it either caused them to think that this sin was no big deal because of how holy they were, how holy they perceived themselves. Remember, if you go all the way back, this is how the whole letter started. You guys are bragging about which faction within the church. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Jesus. And so there's this, uh, there's this uh, moral holier-than-thou Uh, viewpoint or thinking within all the members of the Corinthian church or most of the members. There could also possibly be an arrogance that stemmed actually from this man's sin. As in their misguided thinking, the Corinthians, it was a shining example of their superior morality. It's okay that this guy's doing this because we are better, we are higher, our standard surpasses both the law of God and the law of the land or the Roman law. So there's an arrogance there. There's the thinking that they are better than even God and God's people. Now, they may not say that. Right? They say, no, no, I don't think I'm better than Paul. I'm saying I'm under Paul. I am of Paul. But in the heart, we understand how pride 
exhibits itself, how it manifests itself, how in the heart your thoughts, your, your, when, when you're struggling with pride or, or arrogance, your thoughts do not match what you know you should say so that you don't look proud. And we know they are arrogant. We know they are proud. Even though they may couch or, or verbalize their arrogance with spiritual words. Whatever form their arrogance is taking in regards to the sin, it is the boasting related to this particular sin that Paul is now addressing. The problem with boasting in general isn't just the act itself, but the thing that you are boasting about. This is sinful in any form of bragging, such as boasting about one's wealth or education or popularity, but it is especially heinous when the object of boasting is another Christian's abhorrent sin. But when we follow God's command to deal with sin and we follow God's uh, plan of how to deal with sin, we have to, by, by nature of that, by virtue of that, what I've just said, we have to do it how God says to do it. We could say we are limited in how we are to address sin by God's Word. An extreme example is you don't cleanse the church of a sinner by killing him. You don't deal with a sin by vocally judging him or, or shaming him or getting angry at him and yelling at him and hitting him because though that may deal with the sin... That's not according to how God has told us to deal with the sin lovingly, graciously, with God's glory and commands in mind. And so we are, if you really want to deal with sin properly, you are limited to God's Word, not only in how to deal with the sin, but also in what you are to consider sin to be confronted. Again, not just your extra-biblical convictions, as good as they may be for you, we can only call sin what God calls sin. Watching a rated R movie or drinking alcohol is not sin according to the Scriptures. There may be sins involved as you watch that movie, as you struggle with anger or violence or lust. There may be other issues, as we'll see later in the epistle of drinking, if you're causing a weaker brother to stumble, for example. But in itself, those things are not sin. And I'm just bringing those up as examples that you can't confront someone or go through the process of church discipline and say, oh, you watch, you watch rated R movies and so we're, you know, I need to confront you on a sin because all of a sudden you're putting your place in the place of God and saying something is sin that isn't sin. Now, if you see a pattern of a man coming home and using profanity with his kids every time he comes back from the movie theater, or getting extra violent, or impatient, and it's clearly attached to that movie, then discernment and wisdom says, look, brother, look, sister, I really think you should stop watching these movies. And I need to confront you on your sin of anger or lust or whatever it is, and part of how you need to repent is stop feeding yourself with these things. You see how that works? But in and of itself, we need to be careful. Smoking is not a sin. Well, we're the, well, you know, we're, we're, we're the body. and you know. No, it's not a sin. It's not a sin. Okay? And so if, if there are other sins related to confront, confront those. But be, we need to be very careful that we stick with God's will. The commitment to church discipline 
The purity of the church, God's glory in not just your life but everyone's life demands that we follow God's will. And when you follow God's will, you will have an acute recognition of the holiness of God, the grossness of sin, and frankly, the ease with which we all commit it. All of this coupled with the beauty of God's plan and the desire for purity in His church brings us to our knees in humility. Following God's will and humility go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other, and when you have one, the other just follows. You say, well, I've been reading the Bible. I've been doing all my disciplines, and I really, I I don't really get what you're saying. I want to be humble. I want to have this awe of God, but it's just not happening. Well, you're reading God's Word, but you're not really thinking about it. You're not meditating on it. Maybe you're not understanding it, and that's okay. Dig deeper. Ask questions. Get a commentary. Get a study Bible. Listen more. And you, you know... For, for those of you here, you're all nodding your heads because you get it. How can you, you know, think about your, if you're into biographies or autobiographies, right, or, or even your modern-day favorite uh, uh, Christian missionary or football player or, or, or even just a, a non-Christian leader, and then you read more about him, and you're just like, man, this guy is so much cooler than I thought. I didn't know that. Wow. I mean, I, 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 I don't know much about her. From what I understand, she she stands for what we stand for. Uh, But you know what really blows me away about Judge Barrett? She's only four years older than me. (laughs) And I'm thinking, this (laughs) this lady could be a Supreme Court justice. She's four years. What have I done with my life? (laughs) And, And then you find out that she's got seven kids, one who's handicapped and two that are adopted. And you're like, Wow, and everyone who knows her is like, she does everything excellently. And you're just blown away. The more you learn about these people, you either just have more respect for them, and you're going to be even more nervous next time they walk in the door, even though you interact with them every day. Oh, yeah, yeah, I just found out that you're actually a a world-renowned writer. I I, I didn't know that. Wow, you know. Or... You'll learn more about them and be like, wow, I want nothing to do with this person. But that second one's not going to happen when you read the Bible, is it? Because there's nothing bad about God. And so the more you read about the Bible or read the Bible and the more you read about God and truly understand and truly meditate on it and truly understand that this is real, He is real, and He is in your life, you are just blown away. You are just blown away. Uh, This is why I tell people, on a side note, there's nothing wrong with reading through the Bible in a year. I highly recommend it. But there's some people who just can't because they read two verses and they just have to stop and be like, wow, wow, and that's okay. That's very good. Now, don't use that as an excuse just to read two verses, okay? You, You hear me, okay? And that's what it is. And this keeps us humbly focused on God's will. When we do what He wants, we've got to look to the Scriptures and see how does He want us to do it, right? Why does He? Why? Why? 
Why would that, but love and grace, let's keep him here. Let's, let's, let's hug him and love him till he repents. And then you read about his holiness. You read about his bride. You read about that great day and we'll, we will be presented to God the Father unblemished. Wow. Keeps us humbly focused on God's will. But, as is evidenced here, when you don't do any of that, the end result is the opposite. In other words, when you don't follow God's will, you won't recognize these truths about Him and you will become arrogant. Because if you don't so humbly submit to God, you've got to follow someone. And no matter what you say about your job or your boss or your parents or your political affiliation or whoever, if you're not following God, you're following yourself. That's arrogance. That's pride. When you don't follow God's will, you won't recognize these truths about him, and you will become arrogant. So a personal benefit of practicing church discipline for you as an individual and for all of us as a church, it keeps you humbly focused on God's will. On a very practical level, you probably find it difficult to rebuke properly. You probably find it hard to address someone's sin. That's, that's a hard thing to do. I get it. Or maybe you're personally offended and so you find it hard to do it with grace and patience and love rather than condemnation and anger. But then again, in striving to do things with the right heart and the proper compassion, you'll have no choice but to turn to God's Word and to humbly turn to God and His instruction manual. So again, even in the very real difficulty of church discipline, understand that it keeps you humbly focused on God's will. Well, let me give you a second universal benefit of church discipline, and that is it protects the church from the influence of sin. It protects the church from the influence of sin, and we've seen this, right? We've talked about we do this because of the uh, or for the purity of the church, but here he uses a great illustration of influence. Look at the second part of verse 6. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. Now Paul's getting to his main point and warning uh, in this passage. We saw last week that the ultimate goal is the sinner's repentance or salvation. As it relates to the church body, however, there is a primary goal for those doing the disciplining, and it is purity. It is the purity, our purity as a church. Here, Paul uses imagery that is familiar to us from the Old Testament as well as uh, from Jesus himself. Let me explain a little bit of of what this illustration is. Leaven has often been compared to yeast, although they are uh, quite a bit different. I guess uh, for a baker, they kind of do the same thing, but they're very different in composition. Now, understand that bread was a staple of the Jewish diet. Uh, Trying to think of a, a similarity here. Uh, but I feel like, uh, especially in California, we're all like, you know, avoid the carbs. So no one really eats bread with every meal. Uh, I don't know of many Asians that even eat rice with every meal anymore, tortillas with every meal, whatever form it is. But you understand that traditionally, every culture has some sort of uh, 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 carbohydrate <laughs> that they eat with every meal, right? And for some of the poor countries, that's all they eat. That is the bulk of their meal. That is their meal. And so it was with the Old Testament Jew. So they always had a loaf of bread baked every, uh, every week 
more if the family was bigger, more for festivals, things like that. But you get, they always had bread on hand. The leaven was an ingredient in the bread that consisted of keeping a little bit of last week's dough for next week. And so let's say it's Sunday, right? And I'm kneading my dough, I'm making my dough, and so I, pu- I would pull off a little bit for next week, for next Sunday's loaf of bread. Well, what happens over those next seven days? That dough ferments. It becomes leaven. And after fermentation, I would add it to this week's dough, which in turn permeated the whole lump of dough, causing it to rise and giving it a lightness. Think sourdough bread, right? Trying really hard not to make a COVID sourdough bread joke right here, so I'll keep going. What's the deal with that? I don't know. Maybe it's because you need to let the leaven ferment and people have time because they're sitting at home. I don't know. Old Testament. This process would be repeated every week for the whole year, right? There's never time they would be without bread. Each batch or lump of dough would have a little taken out to ferment for the next week. Now, you can imagine, especially thousands of years ago, right, week one, January 7th, I take a little bit of dough, put it in January 14th, it permeates that dough, and so week after week, right, by December, there's still a little bit, right, because you've kneaded it in, of January 7th still. And especially 2,000 years ago, when we didn't have Lysol wipes and bleach, there'd be a little dirt would get in there. Maybe a piece of wood, maybe a little ash from the fireplace or something like that. And so week after week, there'd be that potential for infection, dirt, risks to that family's health. And even though you're only keeping a little bit, a small amount, a little sin, you have a small amount of dirt carried over from loaf to loaf with more impurities potentially being added every week. Well, God's pretty smart, wouldn't you say? And so he instituted something you may be familiar with called the Feast of Unleavened Bread a seven-day festival ordained in the Old Testament in which the Jews weren't allowed to eat anything leavened for seven days. At the end of that seven days, they would start with a completely fresh new batch of dough without any leaven and thus no impurities from any of the 52 weeks before that. And then that would last for 12 months of baking until the next Feast of Unleavened Bread. It was a hard Reset. They were wiping clean the hard drive. Brand new, fresh dough. And we'll talk more about that festival later. But the leaven works because it eventually permeates through all of the dough. You get that, right? That's why, you know, you, know, you ever baked, even now, you know, I'll, I'll bake once in a while, and I still wonder, like, how come I don't have, have like, a scrambled eggs in just one section of the brownies? Because you mix it in, and sure enough, it does permeate all of it. And that's what the leaven does. But as the leaven permeates the whole lump of dough week after week, so does any filth or contamination in that leaven. And in that, you see why the New Testament picks up this illustration 
to speak of influence permeating the whole, both positively, such as the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 13, but also negatively, for example, bad theology in Galatians 5.9, and one person's sin in the church here. The idea is simply this. A little influences the whole. A little influencing the greater whole. In fact, Paul uses grammar in the Greek to emphasize the word little. It just takes a little. It just takes a little. You have young kids, you know you do the same kind of influence, right? All it takes is that. Take off your shoes. Wash every finger. All it takes is a little bit to contaminate everything. And that emphasis on little is Paul's emphasis in saying that's all it takes to ruin everything. More to the point. The sin of the Corinthians, though limited to specific individuals, and for the incest, one individual will eventually contaminate the whole church. And indeed, we see this happening there. What's the solution? Admonishment, church discipline. You protect the purity of the church by removing the sin, the leaven that will eventually spread throughout the whole church, the whole lump of dough. Now, we may not be so familiar with the leaven or the, uh, the, the ingredient of leaven, but the same principle found, is found in the physical truth and the proverbial nature of one bad apple spoils the whole bunch. Right? You've used that before, and you've seen that because if you, like my family, place fresh fruit in a bowl on your counter during the warm summer months, you know that the heat can speed up rot and delay in the fruit. And all it takes is for one piece of fruit, one apple, one peach, one whatever, and not even the whole apple, just one little side, right, to get a little brown. And if it's touching something else, Pretty soon that mold and that rot is going to spread through that whole bowl of fruit, even to the pieces of fruit that are unripe. The bacteria will spread quickly unless you catch it in time and remove it. That's all you have to do. You don't need to rewash. You don't need to bleach the bowl. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to change bowls. You just got to remove the bad apple. And it can no longer spoil the whole bowl. That's what church discipline is. Deal with the sin. If necessary, by removing the sinner to keep the other fruit, the subsequent lumps of dough, from spoiling. And it's not necessarily that when we talk about leaven, right? One, one leaven, piece, small bit of leaven, one bad apple influences the whole... It's not that everyone in the church is going to start committing the same sin. We know that that, that's not what Paul is saying here. It doesn't even make sense. He's not saying just because you you don't deal with this guy's incest, pretty soon it's going to influence the whole lump, meaning you're all going to be committing incest. No, that's not what he's saying. But you understand that when we let sin go unchecked, what does that do? It affects our fellowship. It affects our community as a whole. But even more practically on an individual level for you, it lowers your standard of sin. It sears your conscience a little bit. 
and it even makes you a sinner. How? Because compromise, justification, or even tolerance of sin is in itself sin. Oh, that's okay, that's okay. And well, it's, if it's okay for him, it's okay for him. Well, if we're tolerating incense, surely that's not okay. We can't confront him and can't confront him. And pretty soon everyone's just kind of in this weird situation. And don't tell me you're not going to start making little compromises in your own life too. You will. You know what the Feast of Unleavened Bread commemorates what they are to think about what God was reminding the Jews of year after year. Israel fled Egypt so quickly that they didn't have time to wait around to leaven their dough. From a scientific standpoint, possibly saving the health, their health, if not their lives. And in the same way, sin must be dealt with quickly and biblically so that there is no time to influence the whole lump of dough, the church. Church discipline protects the church from the influence of sin. Can I just give you a a practical example? We're all confused right now. We're confused. No matter how much of a diehard Trump fan or Biden fan you are, you hear things and you're like, uh, I didn't know he believed that. You're confused. No matter how much scientific, how many scientific journals you read, you'll read another one and go, oh, maybe I should wear a mask. Maybe masks don't work. You're confused. Because no matter how sure you are of something, you are influenced by the media how much more by an unrepentant sinner in your church family. Benefit number three. Church discipline manifests the practice of our position. Church discipline manifests the practice of our position. Look at the first sentence of verse 7. He says, clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump just as you are in fact unleavened. A little confusing. Let me explain. Again, referencing the Feast of Unleavened Bread during which the year-old leaven is thrown out and a clean, fresh lump of dough is made. So the sinning individual, the leaven, is to be removed from the church and the church will then become clean, a fresh, new body without the old leaven. The phrase clean out that he uses here means to purge, but purge thoroughly, to clean completely, all the nooks and crannies. And the Jewish regulation during this festival was not just that the old leaven not be used in the new bread, but all leaven was to be completely removed from the house. You are not even supposed to have any leaven in the house, Exodus twelve fifteen. Not a trace of it. It's not enough to say, oh, I've remo- it's in the trash can. It's in another room. Keep it to the side. No, it can't even be in the house. 
And when Paul says to clean out the old leaven, he also wants the man to be out completely. He's not even supposed to be in the house. You don't just take away his ministries. You don't just say you're not allowed to take communion. He needs to be completely removed from the house. And what's more, Paul uses a tense in the Greek that emphasizes a sense of urgency. Hurry up before you're all contaminated. This is defiling the church purity and identity. Don't procrastinate. Treat this seriously. Do it quickly. Do it thoroughly. Do it now. You see that that rotten batch, rotten piece of that apple that's touching all the other apples, double in size in the last hour, you don't say, oh, but tomorrow's the day I clean out the fridge. I'll get rid of that apple tomorrow. No, you pull it out now. Especially if you bought it at a farmer's market and paid way too much. That's a joke. But seriously, why is it so expensive? I remember going to farmer's market as a kid, and you went there because everything was organic and cheap. Now you just go because everything's organic. It has nothing to do with anything we're talking about this morning. Just wanted to say that. So he says, do it quickly. Hurry up. And when this is done, again, the church will be a new lump, a fresh start as an uncontaminated community, not an old one that has been patched up, but a completely new society. And look at the next phrase, do this just as you are, in fact, indeed, unleavened. Now, what he is saying here seems confusing because he says, it seems to be saying, he's like, do this so you'll be what you already are. Then, well, what's the point then? Well, what he is saying here is something he says in different ways and in different places in his epistles. And it is a powerful theological truth that drives all Christian living, which is this. Be what you already are. You're a sinner saved by grace, so act like it. In God's eyes, your position in His eyes and in His kingdom, you are positionally a purified people Now be that practically in your actions, right? You you see this in the movies. Some of you uh, have experienced this, right? Uh, This never happened to me, but I would imagine at UCLA, the mascot is the Bruins. Some of the, you know, when the football team had a a bad game, first two quarters, first half in the locker room at halftime, the coach is saying, you're Bruins, now act like it. Does a bad game mean they're kicked out of school? They're no longer a Bruin? Go back and reverse their SATs, reverse their application, remove their acceptance? No, they're still a Bruin. They're just not acting like it. Maybe your parents said this to you when you were growing up. You are a masseuse. Now act like it. And what Paul is saying here, and he says this in other places, he's saying you are a purified people, you are a holy people, now act like it. You understand that because of the blood of Christ, we are righteous, but we may not act like it when we sin. See, when we talk about righteousness or holiness, there are two kinds as it pertains to the Christian. 
positional, and practical. In God's eyes, we are righteous in position, in standing, in title. Because we are covered by the blood of Christ, nothing can change that. That's positional. Right? Your position at your workplace may be a manager, even though you don't manage anyone. But that's what it says on your paycheck. That's what it says in the, in the, 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 the company roster. That is your position, and nothing will change that. Practical righteousness or holiness means how we behave on earth. Though our position in Christ is righteousness, we may not behave like it. It's the same idea in Colossians 3.12. Don't turn there for the sake of time. But he says, so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, he's describing who they are, position, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Since you are this, do this. 1 Peter 1.14. As obedient children, we know from the grammar that that is a title. You are classified as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. In other words, since you are classified as obedient, be obedient. In the same way. When we as a church are called to clean out the old leaven, to be an unleavened body, we do so because we are already positionally, in God's eyes, purchased by God to be an unleavened body. What we are to become is what, by the amazing grace of God, we already are in His eyes. Let's be what God has made us. In other words, let's practice our position. Paul is directly referencing the incestuous man, but this has broader implications for all sin. And we must do this for all sin at every level. Number four, the fourth universal benefit of church discipline, it reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ. It reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ. Look at the second part of verse 7. He says, For Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. Do this. Be unleavened. Remove the leaven, for Christ our Passover has also has been sacrificed. Let me explain. The Passover meal was eaten on the first day of the seven-day feast of unleavened bread. Okay? There's some confusion about that. A lot of people think this is what ended the feast. No. Feast of Unleavened Bread is seven days on the first night of the feast. To kick it off, you eat the Passover meal. Now, as you know, what you eat at the Passover meal was a lamb that was to be ceremonially ceremonially slaughtered in your home to commemorate the blood, you remember, on the doorposts of the Israelites in Egypt so God would know that an Israelite was in there and he would not go in there and kill the firstborn. This, of course, was foreshadowing Jesus' blood that protected us from the wrath of God. Now, in this festival, on the day of Passover, before the meal, on the first day of Feast of Unleavened Bread, but also before the lamb was killed, there was a ceremonial search for all leaven in the house in order to throw it out. To eat any leaven during that entire seven-day feast 
was to be punished by completely being cut off from Israel. Completely cut off. And thus, all leaven was to be thrown out before the Passover meal was even prepared. Today, before the Passover meal, devout Jews will actually do this ceremony where they'll hide pieces of unleavened bread and and sometimes they'll have everyone, if not just the kids, look for it, kind of like an Easter egg hunt. It's just part of something they do. That's not commanded in Scripture. It's just part of a modern tradition. Then they will find it, those pieces that they've placed, and they will actually burn it. And then, modern Jews, to make sure they don't violate the command to not eat any leaven, starting at the Passover meal, they will then go brush their teeth and rinse their mouths well to make sure there isn't any leaven in their mouths. For Christians, the Passover lamb that was slain and the blood that was spilt from that lamb, of course, was Jesus Christ, and it was done for the salvation of God's people. And the idea for the church that Paul is saying here is that the lamb has already been sacrificed. So why is there still leaven in the house? You see, if this had happened in the physical Passover meal and there was still leaven in the house and dad slaughters that sacrificial lamb for dinner, big trouble. Big trouble with the people, big trouble with the judges, big trouble with God. And Paul is saying he's already been slain. And you still have leaven in the house. Get rid of it now. Get rid of it and be quick about it. But unlike the Jews, our feast is not for a week. It is for a lifetime. The sacrifice of the lamb on the cross should have caused a permanent change in our behavior. Specifically, now we turn away from sin and repent of it constantly. We definitely don't let it fester in our own lives or in the life of the church. And when we deal with the unleavened bread, as with the Jews, it is because we are focusing on the Lamb. For the Jews, we got to do this, we got to do this. You can hear the Lamb bleeding, He's here. Dad brought him in, get the, get the leaven out, get the leaven out, fixing our eyes on the lamb. For us, we look back and we fix our eyes on the lamb of God. Get the leaven out because of Christ. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. To be fair, the imagery falls short. Because unlike the Israelites, we are cleansed already. And removing the lump will not change our standing before God. What it will do is help us excel still more. And this brings up the point of not just doing things, rebuke, church discipline, etc., for salvific reasons, but to be even more holy and obedient in light of what Christ has done for us. This should be our passion, God's glory. This is why we do this. May we be a church, may we be a people who never say, well, I can do that because I'm saved already. 
My theology is right. I'm not going to lose my salvation. So I can, I can do this little sin because, hey, I'm redeemed. I'm in the Lamb's book of life. Can't lose my salvation. Yeah, your theology is right, but your devotion is wrong. And so, church discipline reminds us that our Passover has already been sacrificed, the sacrifice of Christ. So, guys, there really shouldn't be any leaven in the house. Well, fifthly and finally, church discipline maintains an integrity of worship. We've seen that church discipline or dealing with sin keeps us humbly focused on God's will. It protects the church from the influence of sin. It manifests the practice of our position. It reminds us of the sacrifice of Christ. And fifthly, it maintains an integrity of worship. Verse 8, Therefore let us celebrate the feast not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Again, the festival or feast we are to celebrate is not once a year, but lifelong. It is a continual celebration of our salvation. And as such, we are to do so as part of our celebration by constantly putting away all sin. And he gets specific here and says that no, not only are we to move forward getting rid of the sin, in this case the man committing incest is the old leaven, but also without another type of leaven or influential sin, which he refers to uh, or really says is synonymous with the old leaven. He says malice and wickedness or evil, if you have the ESV. To put it simply, the word malice in the Greek is badness. It's an evil disposition. It's an evil nature. It can evil even mean viciousness. Wickedness. The second word, or evil in the ESV, is the acting out of that evil disposition. Now, both of these are general terms that Paul is equating not just with that man's incest, but any sin, especially sin that is allowed to go unchecked. And instead, and keeping with the illustration, we are to live life, celebrate the feast with unleavened bread. And this bread is, he says in the verse, sincerity and truth. So instead of malice, we have sincerity. This is integrity, purity of motive. It describes the mind and the heart and your conduct. This word could actually be literally checked by sunlight. We are to be checked by sunlight. This was a process by which vases would be held up to the sunlight. Let's say you're going to buy a vase at the, at the outdoor marketplace. You're like, well, I want to see if this is a bad vase, a broken vase. And you can't tell because there could be a, a hairline crack in there. But if you hold it up to the light, you would see if there's a tiny crack in there that they would have filled in with wax so that... You, it's almost uh, uh, invisible to the naked eye. Uh, I guess it's similar to uh, holding up one of those new $100 bills, right, to see uh, the watermark of authenticity. Integrity. The second description of this leaven-free life is truth. Now, this word truth in the Greek goes beyond just the opposite of falsehood. It conveys the idea of a sense of 
honesty, or again, integrity, that fleshes out in word and deed. In other words, the heart and actions correspond. A good way to put this word or describe this word truth is purity of action. Purity of action. Of course, the whole gamut of the Christian life is involved here, right? The heart, the mind, the actions, but as informed by the Scriptures, as, as directed by the desire to glorify God. This is integrity. Both of these words, that word, that theme popped up, integrity. Sincerity is integrity. Truth is integrity. You know the word integrity comes from the word integer. And if you remember from grade school, in math, integer is a whole number, not a fraction. It's what makes us whole, undivided. And to use biblical terminology, it's what makes us not hypocritical. When the Corinthians allowed this incestuous relationship to continue in the church and even got cocky about it, they are not living with integrity. They are not living in accordance with what they are professing. And when we live this way, devoid of malice and wickedness, but filled with sincerity and truth, we live out our new existence in the way that we are supposed to, according to God's Word. Both sincerity and truth speak of behavior that is full of, It is authentic. It is a life of integrity, which means like that vase, it can stand the test of the light of day. The impurities are gone. The corrupting influence of the dirty leaven has been completely removed. The result is a life and a church that is lived in holiness and purity. And again, this can only happen when the sin is removed. We have an integrity of worship. This is family. We are connected in a way that is deeper, more significant, more profound, and more eternal than physical blood. It is the blood of Christ. And so it should bother you when you know of sin that has not been dealt with in the church. It should bother you if you're part of a church where the elders are not practicing church discipline. That's why many of you came from churches that split over this kind of thing. It should never be enough that we sit here whether you're in this room or in your living room. We stand to sing. We worship. We take communion with a clean conscience, knowing that there is sin in another brother's life, knowing that God is not being glorified in that person's life. You're the only one who can do anything about it. You're the only one who knows about it, but you keep quiet. It's not enough. It's not enough. You need to live out your life, not just saying, I'm okay. Others are not okay, but I'm okay, so I'm okay. We're a family. You you, you wouldn't do that. Dinner stops 
when one of my kids falls off the floor, off his chair, and starts crying. I don't turn to my other boys and my wife, you good, you good, you good, all right, let's keep eating. Right? You, you, you don't, 